Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr Mark Cable of University College Dublin. His paper was entitled Cultural Mixing in Early Modern Ireland. Uh, in 1618, a West Cork praise poet, a praise poet called Tygo Dáil addressed a poem beginning Gav Magyarán Hjorsha, except my complaint, George, Sir George Carew. Odala approached the sometime Lord President of Munster and leading Elizabethan military commander on the basis of the mutual obligations inherent to the traditional relationship between poet and patron in Gaelic Ireland. In the 13th century, Carew's ancestor Robert had supposedly appointed Tighe's forebear as his praise poet and had assigned the Odala family lands free of rent on the Wintervari Peninsula, which is uh, also think called the Sheep Peninsula in West Cork. Um, the Carews held lands in the area until their fortunes declined towards the end of the 14th century, and more recently the Adrone branch of the family had reactivated its claim to holdings in Corks in the 16th century, and this claim was subsequently pursued by Sir George. Implying the link between the families had been maintained intact over the centuries, Odala now complained to Carew that his standing as chief's poet and his head of his sept were challenged by a rival. Additionally, his lands were sub- subject to cess. In return for his patronage and assistance, Odal undertook to commemorate Carew's exploits and valour in his poetry. Now, this fleeting encounter, possibly in London, between Gaelic poet and English soldier and administrator, is in many respects emblematic of the unexpectedly intimate, complex and often fluid interaction between native and newcomer in early 17th century Ireland. The sheer scale of British migration to Ireland between 1603 and 1641 estimated 100,000 people is suggestive of a densely textured pattern of social and cultural interchange, which was surely alternately and often simultaneously hostile, ambiguous, exploitative and mutually beneficial. Moreover, the character and density of British settlement in Ireland uh, were not homogenous at provincial and regional levels. Indeed, the three essentialist ethnic categories of Old English, New English uh, and Gaelic Irish have in some respects served to sustain a simplistic and arguably misleading interpretation of early modern Ireland, in which supposedly unambiguous and clearly demarcated ethnicities dominated within specific territorial, cultural and linguistic spheres. Unquestionably acceptance by historians and literary scholars of such an unproblematic interpretive paradigm diminishes our capacity to appreciate latent aspects of cultural and demographic experience not so readily explicated within an essentialist framework. In this respect, Peter Burke's concept of cultural hybridity provides a useful tool with which to envisage and to interpret intense and unexpected cultural encounters. While acknowledging that what he terms, quote, prolonged encounters between human groups have included a good deal of conflict, unquote, Burke also asserts that it's useful to distinguish between such social conflicts and, and I quote, their unintended consequences over the long term, unquote. Given the inherent conceptual tension between generic definitions of nationality and cultural identity on the one hand, and intersecting identities less amenable to absolute categorisation, is proposed in this paper to focus on the granular and the local, with a view to interrogating notions of cultural mixing in a specific early modern Irish locality. The biographies and work of two poets active in the former southwestern Palatinate of the Geraldine Earls of Desmond, uh, Maurice Fitzgerald, Munish MacGarald, and Piers Ferreter, Piers Ferreter, 
provide valuable source material for a microhistorical case study of a matrix of identities and cultures. This was a region characterised by a largely Gaelic cultural milieu, but historically subject to the semi-feudal authority of the Earls of Desmond. Both poem, uh, poets lived in a sphere which had historically constituted the liberty grant of the first Earl of Desmond in 1329. Down to the late 16th century, the crowns writ in Munster generally had been restricted to walled towns and, and subject to the fitful acquiescence of magnates. The execution of the rebellious 14th Earl of Desmond in 1583 was a decisive factor in the subsequent uh, plantation or planting of Munster inaugurated in 1585. Approximately 300,000 acres made up of dispersed segments of land across the province were granted to newcomers. It is worth noting that a relative measure of cultural and social continuity was sustained across significant swathes of post-plantation Munster. Moreover, as David Edwards has demonstrated, New English settlers were not uniformly Protestant, and the presence of recusants among their number cautions against the, the assumption of homogeneity on the part of the newcomers. The personal and family fortunes of Morris Fitzgerald and Pierce Ferret were indelibly, indelibly marked by the eclipse of the House of Desmond and the subsequent plantation, which introduced new influences to Munster's political, religious, cultural and linguistic landscape. Uh, Fitzgerald's father, the polymath jurist David Dove, was killed while fighting for the Earl of Desmond's forces in a skirmish near Killarney uh, in June 1581. No year of birth is recorded for Morris Fitzgerald, and accordingly his birth is simply dated prior to 1581. Nicholas Williams, in his edition of the extant poems ascribed to Morris, suggested that his father was related to the Geraldine Knights of Kerry family. However, the evidence of a pedigree extant among the antiquarian papers of George Carew would strongly suggest he was linked to the Fitzgerald family of Ardnagra, southeast of Castle Island. At the time of his demise, David Dove owned a house and garden in Dingle in West Kerry, and it is quite possible that Morris spent some of his childhood in this coastal settlement, whose sheltered harbour facilitated its role as a channel for the import of wine from the continent into southwest Ireland. Now, Richard Stenyhurst, in his treatise in Ireland, published as part of Hollinshead's 1577 Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland, provides an intriguing account of David Dove, which details his supposed creative versatility in terms of Renaissance universal man, who was a musician, craftsman, medic, and poet in Irish. Stenyhurst records that David Dove visited, visited Italy and had spent time in Pisa. He must also studied law as a reference to him in a 1578 fiend mentions David Dove Fitzgerald of Kerry, learned in, law, in the law. This fiend provided for his nomination as a delegate to an ecclesiastical court of the established church. Fitzgerald's inclusion in this commission, along with the Chancellor and Treasurer respectively of St Mary's Cathedral in Limerick, implies that he enjoyed a high measure of social and professional status. Attention of high treason in 1586 for his involvement in the Desmond Rebellion, the record of David Dove's properties in Dingle at the time of his death, which were allegedly mortgaged to the amount of 15 shillings sterling, suggests that he was not wealthy and that he belonged to the middling classes. However, David Dove was evidently an individual of considerable intellectual sophistication who had possibly studied at a continental university. Morris then, it may be assumed, was formed within a cultivated environment marked both by Gaelic and broader European influences. The outlines of Morris's life can only be vaguely discerned. He and other family members are named in a pardon dating to 1601. At this point, he and his family were resident or at or adjacent to the McCarthy Moore stronghold of Palace near Killarney. He was also pardoned in July 1604, presumably in the aftermath of the Nine Years' War. And at that stage, he and his brother were resident in the former Geraldine settlement of Castle Island in East Kerry. 
Now, these details, admittedly scant, nonetheless demonstrate that Morris moved between cultures and between Gaelic and nominally Anglo-Norman territories. The reference to Morris in the first version of Parliament Clinitimarsha, the Parliament of Clan Thomas, which is a burlesque pro-satire of the, of the pretensions of the emergent cohort of Gaelic parvenu, which arguably dates to the year 1608-11, suggests that Morris was well-known in southwest Munster. Morris enjoys a walk-on part in the first redaction of the satire when he's called on to adjudicate in a conflict between two quarrelling protagonists of stereotypically uh, based lineage. He is also said to have authored a book on the foul deeds of Clan Thomas, and the, the cohort so comprehensively reviled in this somewhat elusive text. Morris is described as a Marco Gaulda, or a foreign horseman, and this may represent a playful reference to his Anglo-Norman descent. As none of his poems can be dated after circa 1623, Williams suggested that Morris died around the year 1630. In contrast to Fitzgerald's minor ranking within the Gaelic canon, Pierce Ferreter is well known as a, as a folk hero and romantic poet in the, in the oral and literary traditions. Born circa 1600, Pierce was the son of Edmund uh, Ferreter, Valley Sibyl and Valley Ferreter in the western end of the Dingle Peninsula. The Ferreters, a minor landed family of Anglo-Norman origin, are believed to have first settled in Dunurland Parish in West Kerry in the early 13th century. Now, the greater part of the Dunurland holding was acquired by Richard Boyle, first Earl of Cork, during Edmund Ferreter's lifetime. It is known that Pierce resided at Ballyferreter and that he held it and other lands on lease from Boyle, who was notorious for his aggressive, aggressive zeal to expand his possession of land across Munster. Pierce joined the ranks of the insurgents in the, 15, in the 1641 rebellion, and under the command of Florence McCarthy, he participated in the siege of Sir Thomas Harris's uh, forces in Tralee from February 1642 until the, Gaelic gar until the English garrison surrendered in August 1642. Now, contemporary evidence, uh, largely from uh, the depositions, indicates that uh, Ferreter was strongly royalist in his political allegiance. Deborah Spratt, a Church of Ireland clergyman present at Tralee during the siege, specifically deposed that Ferreter had protected both the goods and lives of Protestants and had provided assistance to many destitute settlers from his own means. Little is known of Ferreter's activities after 1642, although it is clear that he was an active supporter of the Catholic Confederacy. Apparently prominent within the local ranks of the Confederate forces, and on the basis of a promise of safe passage, Ferreter accepted an invitation to talks with Brigadier Nelson at Ross Castle near Killarney. Uh, Friar Sullivan, in his history of Kerry, composed around 1574, wrote that uh, Ferreter was uh, intercepted at Castlemaine on his homeward journey to West Kerry. He was hanged reputedly along with a bishop and a priest in Killarney in 1653. Following the restoration, the new administration recommended that his father's estates be returned to Dominic Ferreter. It was recorded that both Dominic and his father had remained loyal to the crown and further that Fierce had sheltered many English Protestant families and that he was, I quote, at length put to death by a court-martial of the usurper Oliver, end of quote. A reference to Ferreter that casts him in, in a heroic mould um, in Sean O'Connell's Lament for Ireland, Tiriv Neheran, suggests that his reputation was reworked from quite early after his death. He's referred to as O'Connell's lengthy composition was essentially a mythic uh, verse history of Ireland down to the Cromwellian period and was possibly composed around 1655-59. The inclusion of the poem in a manuscript, uh, British Library Edgerton Manuscript uh, 187, which is written in Dublin in, in 1686 by William Lynch, and the subsequent circulation of the text in various manuscripts throughout Ireland indicates that awareness of Ferreter was not simply confined to his immediate locality.
The fluid representation of the persona of the royalist Fraser within Gaelic scribal culture and later oral tradition indicate that his Anglo-Norman ethnicity was not perceived as problematic. Indeed, the effective illusion of his uh, ethnicity prompts speculation as to how fixed or meaningful an Anglo-Norman or an Old English identity was in a region such as southwest Munster in the early 17th century, where a common culture and language prevailed. In order to, to interrogate questions of ethnicity in the micro-context of early modern Kerry's, propose now to examine one composition each by uh, Fitzgerald and Ferreter. Murish MacGarrett or Morris Fitzgerald's most significant and longest poem, uh, extant poem at 288 lines, is titled Moor Idan Heimshrib, Great the Difference Between the Ages. Now, Nicholas Williams has argued that it was composed around the year 1610 and that the poem is in the tradition of medieval estates satire, in which various classes, professions, and cohorts within society are berated for their purported failings and faults. Indeed, Williams asserts that despite its composition in the 17th century, that the work is fundamentally medieval in scope and uh, theme. The composition is premised on Ovid's description in Book One of his uh, Metamorphoses of four ages dif differentiated respectively by gold, silver, brass, and iron to convey a sense of successive phases of societal degeneration. Fitzgerald claims that Ireland at the time of composition was char characterised by the age of iron, and accordingly he declares that his intention to chronicle the island's baneful condition. Contemporary society is depicted in heavily negative terms. Enmity, base behaviour, laziness, passivity, lust and lack of civility are the defining characteristics of the period. Uncertainty and opportunism prevail in matters of religion and faith. Some attend Catholic Mass with little enthusiasm, while others attend Protestant services by way of superficial conformity and prospective self-interest. Interestingly, Fitzgerald appears to, to suggest that questions of faith generally were influenced by financial considerations rather than by conscience or doctrine. Avaricious merchants extend easy credit to clients who spend unwisely on the latest fashions. At the least sign of default, the indebted experience the full onslaught of the legal system. Sounds like the end of uh, the Celtic Tiger, really. Mortgage lands are steadily accumulated by rapacious merchants, and this way the latter become the new nobility at the expense of the dispossessed elite. Addressing his audience directly, Fitzgerald accuses them of idiocy, and he stresses that honour divorced from power results in a sad predicament. He urges his landed audience to exercise moderation and expenditure and prudence in the management of their estates and affairs. Fitzgerald then proceeds to castigate various professions for what he deems their malign influence on the landed elite. Tavern keepers extend credit to customers with predictably unfortunate results, medical doctors, lawyers, apothecaries, schoolmasters, churls, and most per pernicious of all, in Fitzgerald's opinion, moneylenders are berated for their greed, malignity, and incompetence. In fact, such is the contemporaneous focus of the poem on an accelerated social and financial upheaval driven by a market economy that it is difficult to accept Williams's sweeping depiction of its form and content as quintessentially medieval. Uh, the four decades prior to the 1641 rebellion witnessed a considerable transformation in the volume of commercial activity and in the composition of economic players in Munster. The export of wool and live cattle to the English West Country was a key factor in the province's economic expansion. Therefore, this poem is surely reflective of such change and its impact. Moreover, the composition sheds little or no light in Fitzgerald's sense of ethnic identity or broader issues of ethnic conflict. This work is, to, is, is focused on the immediately communal, where Irish is the accepted means of communication. It is also possible that immediate issues of financial agency and autonomy have, in this instance, superseded 
reckoned out questions of, of historic ethnicity. Pierce Ferreter's poem, Mosheke is Mohe Remlohu, Your Death Has Caused Me Prolonged Anguish, is a powerful lament marking the death in Flanders of Morris, son of the Knight of Kerry, around the year 1642. It is known from a petition dated uh, 3rd of May 1631 and signed by the gentry, gentlemen and townsmen of the Diocese of Artfurt to have Dominic O'Daly OP as their bishop, that Morris was the third son of William Fitzgerald, Knight of Kerry. In a general pardon in 1604, William Fitzgerald was described as living in Rahanan in, in Ventry Parish, which is in the vicinity of the lands held by the Ferreters. Therefore, it is quite possible that Ferreter and Morris Fitzgerald were childhood uh, friends. I don't want to confuse you here, but Morris Fitzgerald now is a different Morris Fitzgerald. He's the son of the Knight of Kerry rather than my previous Fitzgerald, uh, who was um, the poet or the poet in question here. Therefore, it's quite possible that Ferreter, as I say, Ferreter and Morris Fitzgerald, the son of the Knight of Kerry, were childhood friends. However, relations between Ferreter and the Fitzgeralds were not entirely benign. On the 26th of February 1642, John Fitzgerald Knight of Kerry wrote to Richard Boyle describing the early stages of the rebellion in County Kerry. He reported that Pierce Ferreter and Boyle's agent in um, Kerry, Dermot Murray Arty, whom he deemed, I quote, conspirators and base abject fellows, unquote, had been issued with military commissions by the Lord President of Munster, Sir William St. Lenger. And that supposedly, and I quote, the one cut off men's ears and punished as he pleased, and the other put up gallows at Ballinacourty, end of quote. Fitzgerald's damning references to, um, to St. Ledger suggested he was consciously playing in Boyle's animosity to the provincial president. According to Fitzgerald, Ferreter was appointed a captain in the, in the government's forces, but he promptly defected to the side of the insurgents and proceeded to play a prominent role in the fall of the fort at Castlemaine and the siege of Tralee. Fearful for his own and his family's safety, uh, Fitzgerald informed Boyle that his house at Ennismore was not designed for war, a quote, having more windows than walls, and that his castle at Rahanan near Ventry had been rented six years previously, and I quote, to one Walsh, who soon after, brackets being son-in-law to Ferreter, turned conspiracy, uh, a conspirator against me, and he holds the same still. Accordingly, Fitzgerald now sought permission to occupy Boyle's castle at Dingle, and an extraordinary swipe at the town's elite and their alleged support support for, Derrit, uh, for Ferreter, he urged him, and I quote, prefer me uh, to such peddling merchants, they having strong houses and two castles. More damning still, Fitzgerald accused the Dingle merchants of having, and I quote, supplied Ferreter with arms that he's coming to besiege Tralee, and that they helped him to rob an English owner and a Limerick merchant of their ship, money and goods, and sent diverse of their young men to serve under him. Now, this remarkable letter to Boyle may well have sought to incriminate Ferreter more heavily in regard to the unrest in Kerry early in 1642 than his actions actually merited. Indeed, the emotional power of Ferreter's composition for Morris, uh, John Fitzgerald's younger brother, hints at the tangled and intersecting complex of emotions, truly negative and positive, which obviously characterise interactions and relations among the elites in early modern Kerry. This elegy for Morris Fitzgerald, the son of the Knight of Kerry, comprises 224 lines in the edition published by Padre Godinin in 1934, and it's remarkable for its vigour and arresting imagery. Ferreter first describes his own personal devastation at Fitzgerald's death. A reference to the conceit that the Irish Geraldines were originally descended from the Geraldini of Florence introduces a, a specific cultural context in the first quatrain, when the deceased is depicted as, I quote, the son of the knight from Florence, a British Vic Unridra of Florence. Ferreter then proceeds to sketch the communal impact of his subject's demise on Munster. 
Fitzgerald's death was proclaimed across the province by the banshee, a ghostly woman whose wailing signals, uh, whose wailing signals death in a household, and by legendary female spirits such as uh, Anya, Punuk Anya in East Limerick. Other wailing women have appeared at sites across Munster linked to the Geraldines, such as at Loch Gur, Shannad, uh, Yall and Mugheely. This topographical emphasis serves to locate the death within a, a broader framework of Geraldine history and tradition. In contrast, the wailing of the Banshee has terrified the English settlers of Tralee, who mistook her lamentation as an augury of their Im imminent ex expulsion from the town. The merchants of Dingle have also taken fright, but needlessly. Ferreter observes dismissively that Monarchy would never mourn their, their kind, and he cleaned Monarchy on Sort's son. And in conventional Gaelic fashion, the element laments his death, and young women have bitter cause to, to mourn the passing of an exquisitely handsome, intelligent, martial, and uh, sporty hero. Supremely hospitable and generous, Fitzgerald refused neither noble nor commoner. However, certain details remind us that Fitzgerald had died in atypical circumstances. For instance, Ferreter mentions that his funeral bier was surrounded by officers from all parts of Europe, and that kinsmen dressed in mourning livery accompany his painted coat of arms uh, at the obsequies. The poet stressed that Fitzgerald was accorded the full funeral rites of the Catholic Church, and he concludes, uh, and Ferreter concludes the composition on a personal and intimate note as he began the work. Quite simply, Fitzgerald's death means the end of both his happiness and glory. At first reading, this poem seems like a conventional Gaelic lament for a nobleman. More accurately, however, two cultural registers of mourning are combined in the composition, and this intersection must be surely reflective of the reality of cultural mixing in early modern Kerry. Now, this cursory consideration of the biographies and work of Fitzgerald and Ferreter suggests a degree of anachronism or retrospective determinism in attempts to discern self-conscious ethnic parameters in an area dominated over centuries by Gaelicised Anglo-Norman elites. The categorisation of the descendants of medieval colonists in the 17th century as Old English seems no more satisfactory in the case of Fitzgerald and, and Ferreter. Moreover, patterns of intermarriage between landed families of both traditions and Munster also also suggests degrees of agency or contingency which elude, uh, elude need definition. For instance, in an undated funeral entry for Daniel McCarthy Ray, recorded by Ulster's office in a volume covering entries for the 1620s and 1630s, his Gaelic and Geraldine lineages are recorded equal emphasis. An entry recorded by Ulster King of Arms in 1637 records the death in 1633 of Daniel O'Sullivan of Dunkerin in South Kerry, who was first married to a daughter of the White Knight, Edmund Fitzgibbon, and who, secondly, um, who married secondly a daughter of Patrick Fitzmaurice, Baron of um, Kerry and Lixnaw. Significantly, O'Sullivan's son Owen married Mary, daughter of Sir Edmund Fitzgerald of County Cork. His second son Daniel married into a New English um, Kerry settler family, Conway of Kiloglan, and his second daughter Eileen was married to Finneen McCarthy of County Cork. In this case, the marital choices made by one, one family covered all three ethnicities. Moreover, marital choice, choices made by settlers also suggest high degrees of interaction across communities, no doubt partly for strategic reasons. Sir Valentine Brown of Mollahaven in Kerry, who died in 1640, married secondly Sheila, daughter of Sir Charles McCarthy of Muskery. Conor McGillicuddy of Castle Carrick in Kerry, who died in 1630, married firstly Jane, daughter of um, John Crosby, Anglican Bishop of Artfert. But Connor married secondly Sheila, daughter of uh, McCarthy of Dungul in South Kerry. Now, if intermarriage was not uncommon across early 17th century Munster, it seems that Kerry was atypical in terms of inter-ethnic inter unions at elite level. 
Moreover, the relatively more restrained uh, nature, thank you, the relatively more restrained nature of the 1641 rebellion in southwest Munster, unlike events in Ulster, is possibly also an indication of a higher degree of positive interaction in the three ethnic communities in the preceding decades. In the case of early 17th century Kerry, therefore, it is suggested that the evidence of Mars Fitzgerald and Piers Ferreter enables greater appreciation of the complexity and richness of cultural experience in an Irish-speaking Anglo-Norman Palatinate. Peter Burke has stressed the importance of the metropolis and the frontier, respectively, as specific locales that are especially favourable to cultural exchange. He argues that frontier zones, like cosmopolitan cities, can be described as what he calls, and I quote, intercultures, which enable a process of mixing, which results in the creation of what he calls, and I quote, something new and distinctive, whether or not we call this Creole, unquote. Um, so the present preliminary uh, comparative review of Fitzgerald and, Fitzger uh, and uh, Fitzferreter suggests that consideration of early modern Kerry as a frontier zone provides an approach which captures the complexity and reality of cultural interchange in one early modern Irish locality. Thank you.